Thank you, Pastor Paul. Uh, as Pastor John is on vacation, we brought a younger, better-looking version of Pastor John, uh, new and improved. Um, they, they're old friends from back in undergrad, so um, I could make that joke. Anyway, so, um, and he would probably say that to him as well. It's so good to see all of you, and um, if you would continue to um, remember all those going to missions on uh, this week, we are excited. Our team, we have, uh, our Japan team is a wonderful group. We have from the coolest people who are in eighth grade, going, and then, you know, high school, then college, then we have some uh, young adults, and then the coolness factor kind of drops off as we have myself and Kel, and, um, but we're, we're going to drive the van, so that's actually good. So, uh, but if you could pray for us, and um, especially for the work that is happening there, um, we're excited about um, being a part, just a little part of what God is doing in Japan, and, um, you know, uh, so we're excited about that, and uh, we're grateful for so many of you who supported, um, prayed, you know, even supported the lunch and all of that. We want to thank all of you uh, for that. And also, um, we, I know, uh, our youth group guys were just coming back today. Right, Gene? Is it back? Are you back? Okay, you're back. Okay, good. So you're here. So we want to praise God for um, them. And uh, I was so worried when they were going to retreat because it was, Friday was so hot. And I was like, oh my gosh, they're going to be above, you know, Santa Clarita, it's going to be so hot. Ironically, it was cooler there than it was in Brea from where I live. And so it was 114 there, it was 118. Um, so they went to a cooler spot. And um, anyways, uh, it was a wonderful, I'm sure a wonderful time for them. And so we wanted to thank Sergio and Gene and our teachers and staff who um, took time off to go there and all of the parents who sent your kids, we want to thank you for that. And thank God for a blessed time that they can go and make these kind of uh, memories and learn about who God is these formative years. You know, today's text, if you've been in church, you've heard this many times. You've read this many times. You are the salt. You are the light. And uh, Jesus calls us this. He calls the disciples this. And he reminds us to live out our identity. It helps us to understand the backdrop. You know, in last week's message, we looked at the Beatitudes, how we are blessed, um, and uh, that it was all by God's grace that we are so blessed. And so as people, as the disciples are sitting on the, at, at the mountainside or the hillside, and Jesus has taught them, you are blessed not because of what you have or what you have earned, but because of what God has given to you. Now they're blessed they have this identity, and now he says, you've got to go. And he calls them and he uses these two um, illustrations, salt and light. Easy to remember. We remember today, salt and light. Salt and light had very specific purposes. And so salt only mattered if there were food and meat for it to preserve and to give flavor. That was the only reason. Salt by itself in a container is no good. Salt that is now uh, placed on meat acted as a preservative. Placed on food, it gave flavor. And so salt has this purpose, and it is complemented by meat, fish, food, and so on. Same with light. Light only matters in the darkness. 
you don't carry around a flashlight in the daytime. It is only important during night. It matters in the dark. And it illuminates and gets rid of darkness. And so we get this picture of the context of where the disciples are. He's saying, you're going into the world. The world you're living in is going to look like this. You are salt. You are light. You have to make an impact. And he reminds them of this. And we're going to look through this passage. First of all, he he tells us um, that the world we live in needs salt and light. Um, it, it, salt and light in itself is not valuable unless there is darkness and there is some kind of meat or whatever. And it tells us this in verse 13. Salt, you are the salt of the earth. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. And so what he reminds us is that the, in the big picture, the whole world is in need of the salt and the light of Christians who will go, who will preserve, who will help And in our small context as well, in your small worlds, in all of your worlds, in your lives, you are the salt and light, and some people look to you, and some people question you and want to know more about you. I was uh, watching some old uh, basketball highlights of the Dream Team. You know, when you go on YouTube and you see one, they give you now like 200 things you have to watch, so I started clicking U.S. You know, playing against China and the dream team playing against Argentina. And one of the um, interviews they had with Charles Barkley, who was outspoken then as he is now. And they said, boy, you, you know, have so much to say. And um, you know, we want to hear from others. We want to hear from, and they, they asked about David Robinson. David Robinson is a, a, a Christian, and he's pretty outspoken about it. And Charles Barkley jumps in, and he takes the mic, he says, I do all the talking because he's a Christian, so whatever he can't say, I say it. And everyone was laughing, um, except for David Robinson. I don't know, you know. It, it's but it was it was kind of funny because it was this idea that oh, because he's a Christian, right? And so there was this even in that context, people were watching. And in our little worlds, at your workplace, in your neighborhoods, those of you with kids at school, they will know. Oh, they go to church. They're Christian. And so this idea that we are to be in the world. It's nice to gather like this, but it is so important for us to then go into the world. You know, Leon Morris in his commentary says, what is good in society, his followers keep wholesome. What is corrupt, they oppose, they penetrate society for good and act as... And so this is why Paul says in Colossians 4, 6, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. He uses the same illustration. And so a speech that is seasoned with salt, it's grace and truth. So it's not just grace saying, oh, it's all good. There's no right or wrong, it's all good. Your right is all good, and that's okay. But it's not just harsh truth. You're just wrong. You're just sinful. You're just bad. And it's a combination of grace and truth and how the world around us needs this, how we have to be such a witness to this. I remember in high school, my... uh, one of my best friends, his name was Kevin, and I remember um, when I was in high school, I was kind of, I would go to church, but I went just because my parents made me, and it was kind of fun. I had a, a really foul mouth. I would curse all the time, and my wife and my daughter still, they said, oh my gosh, you know, we thank God we don't have a son like, or a brother like you, you know, like you, when they hear little stories, and, um, you know, and I, I used to 
show affection to my friend Kevin by hitting him, headlock, throw him down, whatever it was. And, uh, but he had two best friends. It was me, and he had another friend named Jim. I remember Jim Barker. He was a, he was a basketball player. Um, and he was a good guy. He was a Mormon. And, um, you know, he would go to church or Mormon and do his Sunday school classes before school at 7 a.m., then come to school and so on. And I remember one day I was talking to my friend Kevin, and he was saying, oh, by the way, hey, um, you know, he, I had invited him to some church events, and he's come. And then he was going to go to Jim's Mormon events. I said, hey, hey, can't go there. It's bad, right? And I didn't know anything about it, right? And I said, it's bad. I heard it's like a cult, you know, you, you shouldn't go. He said, well, why? I said, it's bad. It's a cult. I said, bad? I don't know, but just it's bad, okay? You shouldn't go, and you should come with me. And I remember he, he flat out said, hey, man, like, he's never hit me or cursed at me or beat me up. He's always very nice. He's never cursed once. So why wouldn't I go there and go follow you? Go there. I'm gonna, you know, like, it's, I, that's how I kind of reacted in uh, my immaturity. But I remember that going, oh, my gosh, I cannot win him over. What am I going to say? Um, and really, this idea of being salt and light, that somehow we are here and we are being watched or observed, and people who, like a boat in the storm without an anchor, is looking at the Christians saying, where is their hope? This anchor of hope, why are they steady? How can they keep going? Why do they look so happy when their life has just been turned upside down? How do they go on? And they will look. And they will watch. And this is the world around us, and we have to go and shine. And the second part of this, I think, is so important, uh, is that you are the light. This is our identity. So Jesus doesn't give imperatives here. He doesn't say, you have to act like the light. Um, You have to act like salt. Go and force yourself. He just simply says, this is who you are. It's just a declaration he makes. So this is not a command. He says, this is who you are. Your job, your identity is to now go and be spread out. Your identity is to go and shine. And you cannot act like it. You cannot fake it. This is simply who you are. And I'm sure the disciples at this point, these teenage boys, age of some of our youth guys, are thinking, I sure don't feel like this. You know, what influence am I going to make? I still struggle with sin myself. What, what am I supposed to do? But he says, this is your identity. This is what I am working on you. And the impact that you will make. You know, I love this picture. We have verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Back in those days, as you would imagine, traveling was far more difficult. And uh, traveling by daylight was key. And soon as now the sun would go down, it was imperative that you found yourself and you arrived at your destination. And you could imagine people with their children and their loved ones and their belongings moving from one city to another, trying to get there. And in the distance, in the dark, they see a city on a hill. The city on a hill represented so much. It represented life. It represented direction. It represented food, water, people. 
It represented a place to stay safety. And so you cannot cover that, he says. People all around in the dark, their eyes will naturally gravitate towards that. And so go and impact the world. Remember, you know, I immigrated from uh, South Korea when I was six years old. And I have a few memories when I was still in Korea. One of them, I remember, we lived in this apartment complex with like a million other people. I mean, it seemed like there was a million people there. And uh, they would do drills. And the army would do drills in case North Korea invaded. And so they, um, you know, sound an alarm and they'd make us turn off all the lights. And it was impossible. From my memory, all they did was yell and scream, but half the lights were on, right? And they would just yell and scream, turn off the lights! Turn off the lights! Do you want to die? Turn off the lights! And these young 19, 20-year-old guys are running around telling us, turn off the lights. And they would run up to the apartments and hit, turn off the lights, do you want us to die? And I'm like, you're making so much noise. You know, it's not going to make a difference, right? <laughs> you're alerting everyone um, uh, to the noise you're making. But they couldn't. It was impossible. City on a hill cannot be hidden. There's an impact that's going to be made. And you look at history, and I wanted to share a couple of instances where Christianity has impacted the world and in our history. You know, uh, Dinesh D'Souza in his book, What's So Great About Christianity, he talks about the Western um, value of compassion. Next, the Western value of compassion all the way back to Christianity. And I want to quote just a, a little bit. This is our culture's powerful emphasis on compassion, on helping the needy, and on alleviating distress even in distant places. If there is a huge famine or reports of genocide in Africa, most people in other cultures are unconcerned, but here in the West, we rush to help. Part of the reason why we do this is because of our Christian assumptions. And he goes back, right? He says, the ancient Greeks and Romans did not believe this either. They held a view quite commonly held in other cultures today. Yes, oh, there's a problem, but it's not our problem, it's your problem, and they leave it at that. However paradoxical it seems, people who believed most strongly in the next world did the most to improve the situation of people living in this one. So he says, when we see something, and we see it now, you know, the place we're going in Japan, near Sendai, that became kind of well-known, not because it's a big city like Tokyo or Osaka. We became well-known because of the tsunami. And we, at that time, when that had happened, we said, we, this is a great opportunity for the gospel. And so we partnered with an organization called Asian Access, and we said, find us some churches that are happening there that we can partner with. We started going. We said, how can we help the local church there as these people who have lost so much um, maybe spiritually even hungrier. You know, um, other examples of Christianity impacting our culture. You know, uh, Tim Keller documents this in his book, Reasons for God. Um, he says, talks about in the Greco-Roman world, it was common to throw out a new baby infant and let them die of natural exposure because women were looked down upon. Women were considered less than a male, Women were not desired. And so a lot of times people would throw them away and it was acceptable behavior. Um, it was in the church 
that they forbade their members. They said, you can't do that. They're made in the image of God. And so this perspective of women and their value was raised up because of the church. Um, Another uh, example, in the Greco-Roman society, they saw no value in a woman who was not married or widowed. And so they would force women uh, to hurry up and get remarried because their value came from their husband, not from themselves. And it was in Christianity that they did not force widows to marry. And ironically, they supported them financially and helped them, fought for them to keep all of their assets um, and to live as they pleased. It's interesting as well uh, that Christianity to uh, support women and to raise their values did not allow back in the days for a man to live with a woman and cohabitate if they weren't going to be married. And they did this because uh, a male, even a Christian male, would have his wife and family, and if they wanted, they would just go and have another household. And no one would say or be able to do anything about it because they were their possessions. And they wanted to elevate the status of the woman. They said, you cannot have that kind of relationship, go and have sex and try to act like this unless she has the full rights of a wife. You cannot do this. And so they implemented that within the church. And so you see that the salt and the light that was impacting the world from the moment Jesus spoke those words until now. And so we are called to keep shining. I don't want to encourage you to keep shining and keep being the salt, and be spreading out all over. It's interesting because Jesus right after says, in verse 15, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. He knew, I think, that many uh, Christians, many of us, let's be blunt and honest, would struggle with this. Many of us might leave it to the professionals, to the spiritual people or the leaders in the church to do this, not me. I'm not bold enough. I'm not, I don't have enough faith to go and do something like this. You don't hide it under a basket. And, the, and I think it is so important here that we take care of our souls, our spiritual lives. I don't want us to come in today and this to be a message about guilt or a checklist of things. Man, I should have done this and I needed to do that and I needed to. Uh, no, he wanted you to just be you as a Christian in your new identity. We have to take care of our souls in this way. And it is so important that we do this. You know, in uh, Gordon McDonald's book, Ordering Your Private World, the classic book, and if you haven't read it, I suggest you get a copy of it. Still in print. So much about self-leadership, self-care. He has a chapter, and it's entitled this whole, uh, titled The Sinkhole Syndrome. And if you watch the news, you see parts of Florida where the ground below is limestone, and as rain and acid would hit it, and it would erode, and all of a sudden the house that looked perfectly fine would fall into the sinkhole. And he uses that illustration to talk about, he says, for some of us, one bad, tragic event all of a sudden just flattens us. 
The hardship of life, one piece of bad news, all of a sudden, it just ruins us. And he argues it's because we haven't been taking care of the inside. He says, we all as Christians have to deal with the inside and the outside. And the outside world, there was bad news to come all the time for us. All of you, we've, we've prayed together, many of us. And um, we've struggled together. We've shared in our community groups and we felt disappointments and life has come at us very in a difficult manner. But what keeps us going and not sinking is what is happening on the inside. And for you to shine, for you to be the salt, um, this is not just a list of things now you have to do, but to take care of yourself, take care of your soul. Keep it. Walk with God so that you're not doing just a list or you're not feeling guilty because you didn't check off the list. Oh, this is who you are. And without even trying, without being intentional or fake or rehearsing anything, your testimony just goes out. And people around you will know, boy, they are just a Christian I love what Dallas Willard says. He says, what matters is not the accomplishments you achieve. What matters is the person you become. I think for us today, it is so easy. If you grew up like me, it was all about accomplishments. Make sure you finish this so you can get here. Make sure you take that test so you can get to the next level. Make sure you get there, and even in, in a ministry perspective, make sure you go, you, you, you get your Master of Divinity, then you got to go and do your ordination test. And it was all achievements, and for me, for a long time, it was just checklist. Okay, I did this, I did that. Oh, okay, even marriage itself. Okay, oh, I got married. Oh, okay, I have a kid. Okay, and these are all achievements, but what, what is important, Willard says, is not the accomplishments, but... The person you become. You are the salt. You are the light. And he closes by saying, and I want to close in verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is not about you. This is not about your own compassion or not being a good person. More than that, it's bringing glory to the Father. When a child does well, who gets the glory? Mom and dad. I still remember watching uh, the Winter Olympics and seeing cheering on Chloe Kim like she was my daughter, right? And um, then remember when she, you some of you remember she finished and she, you know, you're so nervous they're going to fall, right? And she makes it and her dad is hysterical. I mean, embarrassing, hysterical, but, you know, he had this homemade sign, and he is screaming, I don't know what language, but he is screaming, Chloe, and, you know, she won the gold, and any of you who know, you've been there, you say, oh, I know what that's like. Who's the happiest of everyone? Oh, well, yeah, U.S. who were happy that she won, but it was the dad, and the cameras kept going to the dad and the mom because they knew those are the happiest people here. The glory goes to them. And so, in your good works, however small it may seem, however insignificant you might think it is, the kindness you show, listening to someone, praying for someone, caring for someone, 
going to Japan, sharing the gospel, going to Mississippi, loving on someone, giving them something that they don't have. Our Heavenly Father is glorified. Worship will go to Him. That is our prayer, golden life. Let's pray. Um, Lord, this is such a simple word, and yet when we think about this, it is so difficult to do. We are the salt, we are the light. And God, that at times become a burden for us, a guilt. Lord, it's not about that. It's, it's about our identity. The gospel changes us and makes us effective, makes us a preservative, makes us a light. And so I pray for my dear uh, brothers and sisters here. Lord, as we picture their neighbors, we picture them going to work and the people in their office, going out to lunch and the, the talks that they will have. I pray that people will look like a city on a hill and they'll say, well, what is the reason for the hope that they have? What keeps them going? What keeps them afloat when life hits them so hard? So God, that is our prayer. Uh, Lord, so would you help us as a church shine brightly? Would you help us as individuals impact one person around us? Not because we are so good, but because you are so good. So Lord, we go with that today. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.